They're the men and women who are used to working in the shadows. Canada's special forces have served in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as a number of other countries the public hasn't been told about. There are currently 1,900 personnel in the country's special forces, but the Liberals have promised to increase those numbers and add more funding. And the government has signaled its desire to make more use of such clandestine troops in the future. Today we'll be speaking with two people with first-hand experience in these secretive units, including a rare interview with an active member of Canada's Special Forces. I'm Dave Puglesi. This is Defence Watch. My guest is Jeff. He's a member of the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, and he's been a member of Joint Task Force 2, the Counterterrorism Unit. Uh, for security reasons, we're not giving Jeff's full name. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, David. So tell me your involvement in the Canadian Forces. So Certainly, yeah. when did you join, and then how did you get into Special Forces? Okay, yeah, uh, absolutely. We can step back probably to about the mid sorry, mid-90s, mm -hmm. when I first joined the military, and I joined into the combat arms trade, so as an infantier. Spent about two and a half years in the combat arms, and great experience, uh, covered, a lot of, covered a lot of ground, uh, but all of a sudden, around the two and a half year mark, JTF2 was doing a recruiting drive. Mm -hmm. So they came to my battalion and did just that. So now, again, I have to position this for everybody and for the listeners. Think back uh, at that point, there was no PowerPoints, there was no laptops, there was no you know, social media, there was no website. So I had no idea who these guys were. Mm -hmm. I'd only heard rumors, myths, and if that, it was so sparse. Mm -hmm. So they came and gave a presentation. It was about a 30-minute presentation. They held an old flak vest, a uh, Reichel helmet, and an MP5, so a weapon system that's commonly used, was used back then. Mm -hmm. And that was about it. They just told a few stories. But the type of person I was and the type of people that we're looking for, that was enough. And, and that was when JTF2 was, was primarily a hostage rescue unit, Absolutely, right? yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, we have to think back then as well, when we use this Special Operations Command terminology, mm -hmm. they weren't around. So uh, I had an opportunity to do selection. So fortunately, I made it through selection first go-around, and then uh, Special Operations Assaulter course. So that's the year-long course that prepares you to become an assaulter. So uh, I graduated from that course, and then off I went. And it really was, it was star-like. I graduated in, say, December 8th, I believe it was. And then uh, literally two weeks later, I'm at a hotel room uh, waiting for my furniture and effects to be come from my, my home unit. Mm -hmm. And I got a call that, uh, Jeff, you need to come in. Uh, we've got an operation. We've got a select few, and you're, you've been chosen to go. Hmm. Like, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is everything I imagined it ever could be. Mm -hmm. And now, unfortunately, that didn't turn out to be anything, a mission we never did deploy. Mm -hmm. But it really set the stage for the career that has happened along the way. So just to go back a little, how tough was selection, right? So, you know, you've been through, you know, obviously the initial yep. selection of the Canadian Forces, uh, boot camp or recruit camp. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, mm -hmm. how much different was selection to be a member of JTF2? It was, without a doubt, it was an incredible challenge. We will uh, challenge anybody, any man, any female, anybody that comes out to their most physical extreme limits you can come in, no matter who you are, at your top physical shape, and you will be broken down to the point where uh, you'll you'll have to decide for yourself, do I want to keep going? Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. That really shows that initiative and uh, the perseverance that we require for an individual to be capable of doing the job that we do. Mm -hmm. And then once that's done, uh, 
we want to test, test some of your attributes and just get a feeling for who you are and what, what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of the training then is focused on uh, footwork, on, on using uh, uh, firearms, right? I mean, you, you've probably shot thousands of rounds yes, of, of ammunition, course, yeah. right? So is it, is it become second nature to use your firearm? Oh, of course, yes. Uh, that that doesn't happen though until the uh, special assaulters course. Okay. So with regards to selection, we're not looking for somebody to come in that's you know incredibly skilled at weapon skills or handling. We're really the goal for the selection process is to assess your attributes. Now I've got an example. Maybe I can throw it to you uh, to help our, some of our listeners decide whether you know they're physically fit enough mm-hmm. or they have the mental attributes. If I took three candidates, put them in front of me, mm-hmm. and they were all of equal physical ability and equal mental acuity, mental you know skill sets and smart. And I was to take some magical soft pixie dust, mm-hmm. and Special Operations Forces pixie dust. We, mm-hmm. Some of us get issued this at different times in right. our career. And I was to sprinkle. <laughs> it's secret, though. Yes, right? it's secret, though, yeah. of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was to sprinkle a little bit on one individual and give him 10% more physical attributes, stronger than, any, than the other two. Mm-hmm. I was to take that same dust and sprinkle it on a other individual and provide him with 10% more mental acuity, 10% more smarts. But now I save my special dust. I sprinkled 10% more drive, more passion, more desire to be there mm-hmm. on that third individual. Nine times, at, 10 times out of 10, you know, with my, I've, run, I've experienced over 13 selections where I've been a staff member on. So I've got vast amounts of experience with that. Mm-hmm. Every time I would tell you is that individual that has the desire and the passion, the will to be there will be the one that succeeds. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, even with 10% more physical ability, we will Everybody will be broken to the point where that doesn't matter anymore. So what, uh, besides this passion, then, yeah. what, what, what are the other attributes you're looking for uh, for, um, you know, an assaulter? Yeah, well, there's a few key ones that have really stood out to me, again, through my experience. And if I think back to my, you know, the original days before JTF2 was a member of CanSoftcom, mm-hmm. right up to the today, some of these same attributes really stand out. And one of the key ones I found that for myself, for leaders, for peers, and for uh, candidates would be discipline. Uh, and I think we can all understand what, what I mean when I say discipline. Discipline in your decisions, discipline in your actions, discipline in your daily routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have that. So you need to have self-confidence. Now, that comes through a lifetime of experiences. Uh, you know, you don't just become self-confident overnight. It's through openness, which is another one of the key characteristic traits that I believe uh, really will allow you to be self-confident is you have to be open. You have to be open to failure. You have to be open to successes. You have to be open to new adventures. You have to be open to new cultures, new beliefs, new mindsets. All these things will allow you to become self-confident. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's integrity. It's not what you do when people are watching that matters. It's what you do when people aren't watching. Mm-hmm. And that's where integrity comes from. Mm-hmm. When when nobody's watching, because in a, an organization like ours, we're very flat. So we're a flat organization in that there's not a lot of oversight. Uh, of course, we're the professionally there's oversight, but there's a, you don't have three people to do one job. You've got one person to do that job. Mm-hmm. So you're expected and trusted to do that job, and other people are doing their job with based on your integrity that you will get your job done. Right. So uh, take me through. Okay. So you've passed yeah. selection. Um, so you go to Dwyer Hill, and uh, which is the uh, JTF two base. base yeah. yeah. And. Uh, so you get off the bus, and, they, hmm. and then what? So for, for, I can give you my example, uh, and then you know most other careers will follow along the same sort of path. Uh, so again, early, early, late 90s, early 2000s, I become a member, a fully badged member, and my first job was a, it was a door, door kicker, a number one through the door. So we work in small groups. They're called detachments, mm-hmm. and the first responsibility you have is 
the most junior position. Uh, then within two years, you know, a little bit of my career path is I became a two IC. So so let's let's stop. Yeah. Sorry to uh, yeah. interrupt there. Let's stop. So when you say um, a door kicker, right? Yeah. So. And we've seen some of this in the JTF2 training uh, videos and such. So you're talking a group of individuals. They're ready to go into a room yeah. uh, to rescue a, a hostage. Usually yeah. in these scenarios, it's yeah. a dummy or sometimes yeah. it's a real person. Um, and so you're first through the door, right? Yes. So you blow the door or your, your, um, your, your guy blows the door. You go in, and then you fan out in the room. So that's what you're talking about? That's that's exactly. So I mean, I'm sure you can, enough people have seen movies and, mm-hmm. and can, can understand that concept. So mm-hmm. the the first position, that individual in the front, he's the most junior person. So, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not the most senior person? <laughs> well. <laughs> okay. I mean, what's it, okay, what's it yeah. like then to be first through the door? It is very exhilarating. Yeah. Uh, but the great thing is, is the amount of training and time that you put in, it becomes incredibly instinctive. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the thing. And that's what makes another thing that makes uh, soft special operations forces what they are mm-hmm. and allows us to be so agile, so reflexive, uh, is because we're a small enough organization that we can dedicate an incredible amount of time and energy and resources to that individual to put them on the top of their game. Mm-hmm. So you've probably kicked in doors a couple of thousand times. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Kicked in a couple thousand times before there's even paper inside the room, before mm-hmm. there's even the most mundane action that could happen inside because before I kick that door, I will learn how to walk. Mm-hmm. The unit will tre- teach me how which foot do I go first with, left foot or right foot. We will we break everything down to its most minutia detail because that's what makes a specialist a specialist or somebody, you know, incredibly good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Take any Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a bobsledder. It's it's where do you place your foot? Do you cant your left foot slightly 45 degrees to the left or the right when you push off? That will give you that little bit more of an edge or power. So that so you're being trained to that type of level. They're Absolutely. telling you what foot to take off before the door is blown open or whatever. We start at that point. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Then there with growth comes flexibility mm-hmm. and you can obviously adapt to situations, but that's the that's the level of detail that we take our job and the professionalism that we take our job to. Mm-hmm. And then, so what come, What came after that? So you've, uh, you, yep. you know. So for me, in my Pacific, Pacific position, then it became a detachment to IC. Mm-hmm. So you take on, you now that much more experienced. Uh, you now take on, if the detachment was to break into smaller groups, you'd be the one that would lead that charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you now have more experience and understanding with all the various aspects and things that we do. Uh, so you take on that responsibility and some administrative responsibility as well to mm-hmm. managing the group. Mm-hmm. Then after that becomes a, a detachment commander. So by my fourth year, I was a detachment commander. So now you are in charge of that group. So you may be, say, tasked to go whatever, whatever country you're tasked to go to, mm-hmm. whatever small party task, whatever duty you're given, you are the boss of that small party. Right. So that happened for me. And then after that, uh, so again, we're, that's only four years into my career. I had an opportunity to move on to our internal uh, training cell with inside our, inside our organization where I became the climbing subject matter expert, so mountaineering climbing, mm-hmm. and as well the close quarter combat subject matter expert. So I was then teaching the younger generations that were coming in on SOAC. Right. And so when you say close quarter combat, you're talking yeah. hand-to-hand or uh, well, obviously close quarter, Yeah, right? exactly. And that's that's a term that's thrown around quite loosely. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a time when that was thought to be an elitist uh, – skill set, mm-hmm. but the reality is is every combat armed soldier at some time in his life will have will engage in close quarter combat. We, we're no longer are we fighting fighting in the open fields, the open plains of Abraham. Mm-hmm. We're fighting in we're fighting in built up areas right. where this is the skill set that's required. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, so yeah, I got an opportunity to do that in the training cell, and then my, my unit experience was surpassing my rank, so I needed to slow me down a little bit. So I once I came back to another specialty trade, which was uh, technical surveillance. Mm -hmm. So I spent a couple of years doing that, and then finally wrapped up with operations. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that wrapped up my career in uh, Dwyer Hill. And then I felt uh, at that point, I had 20 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. I had 17 of those were at Dwyer Hill. I decided I needed a bit of a break. Uh, so I joined the primary reserve. Mm -hmm. And at that point, that was just a great experience for me. I was able to take a bit of down tools, take a bit of a mental and physical break. And during that period, I had an opportunity to work, honored to work over nine different selection serials. Mm -hmm. So I came back in the primary reserve to do that role. And that gave me a, a ton of experience. So now all told, I think I'm about 13 different serials that I've, I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, I decided oh, this is my home. You know, I had my chance, I had my break. Mm -hmm. This is my home, this is where I belong. So I re-enlisted, mm -hmm. open arms in, back into the community. And I believe that I could, the time that I had off, I can bring back that much more energy and passion to my job. So you've seen over your career, uh, like the progression of Canadian Special Forces. So we've gone for a, from a hostage rescue unit, uh, JTF-2, yes. and then 9-11 happens. Yes. And there is a morphing of that into a special forces unit. Yes. Um, and then, of course, later on, we get the Canadian Special Operations Regiment in Petawawa, yes. uh, CGIRU, which is uh, based in Trenton, yes. which uh, deals with weapons of mass destruction, that type of thing. Correct. So uh, in this progression, um, I mean, what are, you know, any any thoughts on that? Like, you know, 9-11 comes along, yeah. and, and is it kind of... Canadian Special Forces are in the big game, so to speak? That's pretty much when it happened. Well, so when 9-11 happened, uh, we, our organization, Joint Task Force 2, as, as I think everybody's aware now, mm -hmm. was an active participant in the, uh, the fight on the global terrorism and the fight against the Taliban. And we really niched ourselves into the Special Forces community at that point, even though we weren't Special Forces at that time, you know, with quotations up in the air. Right. Uh, but after that, we, we really solidified ourselves within the community and we realize that we we can play a significant role, and we've kind of re retooled ourselves slightly after that. Mm -hmm. And then as we grew, we started to, within Joint Task Force Two. We started to realize, well, there's the com the problems are much more complex than any one unit can handle. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's you know where the command started to come in to provide oversight and help us with our growth. Mm -hmm. And then from that, uh, we talk about CSOR, the Special Operations Regiment in in Petawawa and Sijiru, mm -hmm. fell out of that mm -hmm. and. You know, maybe I can give you a small example on how they all can work together. Sure. But without each one of these organizations, as, as you'll hear from my example, like I think I can come up with here, uh, no one organization could do it, could do it all. So in mid-2000s, I was tasked with creating an exercise that uh, would challenge each one of the subunits uh, with, with more than one skill set or one of the, more than one mission set. So that's CGIRU, uh, CSOR, and uh, Joint Task Force 2 as a part of my operation cell job. So paint the scenario, uh, to, to paint the scenario, is I envisioned a hostage rescue, uh, and it was gonna be in a foreign land, but it was a, a foreign land where our country was accepted, but there were small pockets or cells within that foreign land where we were not, you know, were not accepted, and that's where the hostage taking was taken. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there was a chemical nexus to it. Uh, so that was the scenario and how it all. So some out. kind of chemical weapon chemical attached weapon to these hostages. With some or hostages, whatever. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I think we all imagine something like that. Mm -hmm. So let me talk about each one of the subunits and how they played in a vital role in accomplishing the task of this hostage rescue, but how no one could ever could ever accomplish this task. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, CSER. We'll start with them. 
So the way I foresaw it is that, that organization had already been in this country and they've worked with their, their indigenous forces to help train them, to mentor them. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us information to feed into the strategic level on the country that we're moving into, the culture, uh, potentially provided us with reinforcements forces. So that's something that they would have done ahead of time to lay that footprint, which is something we're doing globally right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the next thing, the way my scenario played out is there it just happened to be a small airfield about 12 kilometers away from the main site where the hostage taking happened. Mm-hmm. So CSER job once again. So they would have inserted themselves most likely through parachuting into the area and seize that airfield. So, and then the last part of that scenario that would have played out is the actual hostage village. There's many, many houses. So they would have pushed forward and provide security for Joint Task Force 2 when it arrived on the scene. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of skills that, you know, a CSOR operator would have to have. So that would be CSOR. Joint Task Force 2, those operators or uh, assaulters. And so uh, let's just back up. So operator, assaulter, we're talking about a a soldier uh, or, or, I mean, they can be air air personnel or or, or, uh, Navy personnel, but essentially a soldier um, who's going to do the job, right? Absolutely. Uh, It's a way to define the different roles. Mm -hmm. So to define the assaulter from the supporters, the assaulters are the ones that have gone through the selection process Mm -hmm. that are at the pointy end of the spear. Uh, the supporters are the ones that get us there, that provide us everything that we need to do our job. Using terminology is just a way to define the two. Yeah. Uh, so then we've got the, uh, the okay, back to my scenario. So we've got the Joint Task Force 2 assaulters, operators, and that's actually, mm-hmm. just throw this out there too, is this, I'm an old guy. Assaulter is a term that I would use, used to use as a Joint Task Force 2 members, mm-hmm. but I think more generically, operator is the term that's used for yeah, all three right, services right. or all three branches. So operators, Joint Task Force 2 operators, would have conducted some sort of surveillance to understand the life patterns within inside this village. So whether that be through technical surveillance, whether that, whatever means, whether they're wearing a suit or whether there's snipers up on a mountain looking down inside, mm-hmm. it's their job to provide that essay, situational awareness, sorry, to pass back to the government of Canada to again help them feed into the decision-making process. Do we move forward? When do we move forward? Mm-hmm. So they would have done something like that. Then they would have inserted an assault force to actually conduct the hostage rescue. So now the hostage rescue has to be done, obviously, with incredible precision. Mm -hmm. uh, because speed, right? Speed, precision, because there may be opportunities where there's a terrorist literally standing two inches away from a hostage. You know, we we talked about the the chemical nexus to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's many other very complex factors. So the the precision of violence has to be very precise and surgical, like a scalpel. Mm -hmm. So they would have done that. And in my scenario, they would have, you know, conduct the hostage rescue. Uh, but however, it turns out that they discovered a dirty bomb. They've also discovered that some of the hostages are, de- are contaminated by a chemical war- chemical agent. Mm-hmm. So they'll, gone, they'll have gone secure at that point. Mm-hmm. Remember, the CSOR operators have come up, provided a blocking force to make everybody safe, to give us time in the situation. Mm-hmm. So now we bring in the CGIRU operator. So let's just kind of back yeah. up, uh, just for in, in layman's language. Absolutely. So so CSOR, Canadian Special Operations Regiment, has seized the airfield, um, has uh, kind of surrounded the village. JTF2 comes in. Um, and now I know you're, you're talking in kind of military lingo, yeah. but essentially they go in and they kill all the terrorists, right? Essentially, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and so now you've got a dirty bomb, which could be either uh, radioactive, uh, uh, of various yep. whatever. <clears throat> so it's sitting in the room and the some of the hostages are contaminated with some kind Correct. of chemical uh, yes. agent. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a great way to wrap that up. So now we bring in uh, the CGIRU operators to, mm-hmm. and they, they focus on chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear mm-hmm. weapon systems. So they would have flown in and as we fly back, 
because uh, we do have a special operations air for air, air, airframe as well. It's with 427 helicopter squadron. Right, so we would employ yeah. them in Petawawa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they would have flown out some of these contaminated individuals and got them off. We call it the X, the target that mm-hmm. we struck and decontaminated them. Uh, but then we realized, okay, we can't get the operators out that way, the, the JTF-2 assaulters. So this, the, uh, the CBRN operators will fly forward and do the decontamination on site. Mm-hmm. So they've got mobile teams that can do that. And they have tents that exactly. have showers and all that stuff, right? And they're hosing these Yeah, that's down. a great way to explain it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so they'll have done that. So they're first advised, then they'll de- decontaminate it. But now that we've as well found the actual, uh, the dirty bomb, mm-hmm. their next job is to secure that and to either... Uh, just contain it mm-hmm. or to do whatever that's required to either take it with us, leave it in location, uh, dismember it, whatever, disable it, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, in a hypothetical scenario, it kind of wraps up what each one of the subunits do. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's talk about kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting. So I've seen some members of JTF2 in the past, yep. and they've been rather large individuals, uh, right? Um, so I'm looking at you, and uh, you look like a normal Joe, uh, uh, you know, uh, normal size and, and that let's, type let's of thing. Let's be honest. I look like the manager from a Gap for Kids. Well, okay. So, <laughs> well, uh, you know, no, you look, and, and so... Is there a kind of a one-size-fits-all of a special forces operator? That is an absolute falsity that I'm so happy to uh, dispel here today for everybody. Mm. Now, you know, I'll go back a little bit in history. So we think back to Joint Task Force 2 when it first took on the role of hostage rescue. And this is maybe where the myth for our specific organization comes from. We took it over from the RCMP. And we all know at one time the RCMP did recruit men that were six foot tall, 250 pounds, and then to become a part of their CERT team, their hostage rescue team, mm-hmm. it was the elite of the elite of their, their big guys. Yeah. So us, when we took over the role, we maybe, filled, maybe we filled that persona a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once we hit the soft, we entered that community. Special operations. Special operations space community. Forces, yeah. You can't be 250 pounds, uh, you know, a gym rat, and all you can do you, all you can do is bench for 12 reps at a time. Yeah. That is not the body type or the shape that yeah. will allow you to be successful physically. Then, again, the complexity of the situations, the problems we're confronted with requires an intellect as well, mm-hmm. as, as well as a, a physical ability. Then add on top of that the complexities of the world today and just – Understanding the dynamics of foreign lands and countries right. and being open. Uh, a a so six diversity. foot six Westerner, even though they have a beard uh, and you know they got twenty four inch biceps, yeah. is going to stand out, right? It's going to stand out absolutely. Right. And, you're, and I'm not going to say that when you come to one of our bases and you run into an operator or an assaulter, you may see a guy that looks like that. Mm-hmm. But more times than not, you're going to see a guy that looks like me, where you will not know you're talking to an assaulter or an operator mm-hmm. until you talk mm-hmm. to an assaulter or an operator. Right? Uh, you, you just won't know. Now, I mean, so in your personal life, I don't want to get too yeah, no in, into into that. But like, for instance, do your neighbors know what you do for a living? Uh, no, actually, they don't. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't hide the fact. You can't hide the fact that you're in the military right. in, in most cases. Right. So there's, we can absolutely tell people we're in the military. Uh, I can tell people I work for special operations forces, mm-hmm. a command. Uh, but my exact duties and roles, that's where we, we keep our mouth shut. Right. Uh, and we have a very close-knit circle of friends and family that we may talk with. But even then, operations are never discussed, numbers. We, we definitely have a party line that we have to. And that's for security reasons. That's for our, our own safety and for the safety of our friends, families, and neighbors. Mm-hmm. Like, I would... I would be remiss to to tell you some of the things that I know because that puts you in jeopardy if you were ever come in a situation where you were talking to somebody that, you know, 
we, we'd be looking for information from you. And now, it's okay. Now, you now can risk, tell me now all risk the secret you. stuff. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one of the reasons why, yeah. you know, operational security is out there. Yeah. It's for our protection. But even within uh, the commands, like the families, would would uh, the family of Jeff know, uh, you know, be, be talking to the family of Mr. X and say, well, the guys have have or the guys and gals have have gone somewhere, yeah. um, you know, and they're going to be gone for a couple months or something. Or or is it just total blackout? It's a combination. To yeah. be honest, it's a combination. There's a certain level of judgment that we place upon our individuals because our individuals are mature. Mm-hmm. They're specially selected to to be mature to have that integrity. So hopefully they know who in their lives they can trust. Uh, of course, your closest family, your wife, your spouse, they have to know something. That's right. just unfair to them to have a relationship. And we want a healthy relationship in our members because that will allow them to be more effective on the battlefield if they're not worried about what's going on at home. Yeah. So their, their wives and friends and families or significant others need to know what it, that, you know, that they're away. Yeah. Uh, they might not know the duration. They might get a general idea. You know, I found myself when I'm on operations with calling home to my wife, I was, my goal was to be as sporadic as I can when I call. So they would never know when the call was going to come and when it wasn't going to call come, because if we created a routine, then if I did go out on operation or a mission and I wasn't home for a couple of days, then they'd start to worry. Mm-hmm. So that was my strategy. Uh, so I, you know, to keep, keep my wife informed. Mm-hmm. Now, what about, uh, you know, there are myths as, as you've, yeah. you know, uh, discussed, uh, what are some of the other myths that, you know, I mean, the movies, yeah. Uh, you know, sure put out a lot of, uh, you know, special forces are the flavor, it seems, of the last decade, obviously, because yeah. of Afghanistan, particularly um, in the United States. So there's a lot of kind of imagery out there. I mean, walk us through that, what's not yeah. true, what is true, you know? Well, I think let's, let's, let's dial it back again to our yeah. conversation we had a few seconds ago about the physical stature, with what's required to be uh, an, an operator or assaulter or a member of the Special Forces Command. Mm-hmm. It's... Nine times out of ten is not what people have envisioned because, again, on these movies and this glamour that comes from Hollywood, they perpetuate something that's almost unrealistic to what is actually happening in the real world. Uh, so we talk about that, that physical stature. Mm-hmm. And, and when we're, we, we talk about recruiting and selection and, and there's the, potentially the listeners from the military listeners that are listening here today, what I don't want them to do is to deselect themselves from an opportunity to join our amazing community yeah. because of some of these false myths. Yeah, don't prejudge uh, yourself. Don't prejudge yourself. Uh, there's, <clears throat> excuse me. So let's make an example of individuals that may or may or did not pass a selection or get picked up for a selection. Mm-hmm. So what what you remember from the selection maybe was a 10 or 20K run. So when you go home, it's it's human being. It's human nature. That 10 or 20K run, maybe I'll tell my friends it was a 30K run because I'm feeling a little bit inadequate for not being there. Right. And then so me as a potential recruit, they hear, oh, 30Ks, and then I have to add another 10 or 15% on all that to make sure I'm ready. So now now I need to be a full-time marathoner, and I also need to be able to, oh, the last guy, he was strong when he came back. He could bench press 300 pounds, and they didn't pick him up. Well, we weren't looking for people that could bench press 300 pounds. So somehow in, your own, they're in their own minds, they created this huge myth. So, okay, now I need to be an elite marathoner. I need to be able to bench press 300 times because somebody else was able to do that. Mm-hmm. I need, they, they create all these false, myth, false myths mm-hmm. uh, for themselves and build, it up, build the individual up to be like that one the individual we described. That's, that's not me. Right. Uh, right. So, so that's a lot of that is just not to deselect yourself, to give yourself the opportunity to, to try for again, for military members, uh, we have a, an organization called PSP. They're a physical training staff. Right. Go talk to them. They will provide you the physical 
guidelines to achieve what you need to achieve to pass a selection. What's left to you is the intellect side and what I talked about before is the, uh, the passion, the desire, and the will to be there. Mm-hmm. That is what will get you through way more than anything else. I mean, one of the other myths is like, you're not MacGyver, right? I mean, you're not going <laughs> to dismen, you know, take that pen apart and, and turn it into a weapon or something. I mean, so in special forces, everyone has a specialty, right? Absolutely. Whether, Everybody has a role. And, right. and we talked about, uh, so we talked about the JTF2 operator assaulter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they have to be able to quickly adapt and learn. Uh, that is one of the specialty trades that we look for, the uh, the attributes that we look for. Uh, so, so no, we I, I'm certainly no MacGyver, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but give me an opportunity to turn this pen into a bomb. If if I was given the right instruction, I could probably figure right. it out. But one of the things too in in the films, for instance, like special forces almost never fail, right? Yep. I mean, and so there's this. I wonder if there's um, because of popular culture, there's yep. this idea that special forces are the kind of be all to end all for whatever. Uh, whatever yep. situation there is. I mean, what, what, what do you think about that? Well, uh, failure. I think failure is an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. I think there's no successful person out there that isn't a failure because you can't be successful without being open and being willing to fail. Whether you do fail or not, you have to be open to that opportunity to fail. You have to experience that to grow from it. Uh, so, yeah. Now, what about, um, I know there's, you know, security restrictions yep. on, on, but can you tell us, I mean, what would have been the, what would have been some of the more hairier moments, so to speak, in your career, right? Or some of the uh, adrenaline pumping moments in your career, if you could uh, talk about. I, th- I think probably the one I was just thinking about the other day was, I uh, was, uh, so, you know, we understand parachuting. Yes. I think that's no secret that that's a part of what we do mm-hmm. uh, in special forces. So take, we'll take complete operation out of this, but actually my parachute training. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were jumping in a, in a location and we were put on a course and we're given a, a time span. We'll make up a number, say three weeks, we go from zero to hero, where we have never jumped out of a plane to we're doing the stuff that you see in the movies with all of our kit on mm-hmm. and oxygen masks and mm-hmm. night vision and middle of night, all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a very quick progression. So for my specific example, you know, talking about being a little bit hairy. So I'm doing through my basic free fall course. So at that point, you've got all your limbs, you know, you're just wearing a, a regular clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's very easy to maneuver. So I was doing, I was doing well. So free fall, you're going out of a plane and you are going to pull a parachute as opposed to as you exit the plane, your parachute automatically opens. Absolutely, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started, we started that level. So you can actually, you know, fly through the sky like mm-hmm. you see people do in the movies or not military-wise. So we get our foundation that way. So for myself personally, I was doing okay. I was not the best one, but I was doing okay. So the next phase, we get to the point now where we're jumping with full equipment. So imagine imagine in the first part, I had all my limbs and all my arms to fly. Right. Now I'm like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm-hmm. I've got this big body, but I've got these tiny little hands and these tiny little feet to fly with mm-hmm. because I've got a rucksack, I've got a rifle, I've got my helmet, I've got all my assault gear, all this equipment. Mm-hmm. And it comes time to jump out of the plane. And I... Uh, was, I was I just reaching the bell curve on this. I was just capable of doing it, mm-hmm. you know, doing it safely, but I was at my limit. So as I'm walking near the back of the plane, we're all moving out. First guy goes, second guy goes, third guy goes. I'm, I think, fifth or sixth in the, in the group or the stack. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I start to, my vision starts to tunnel in, and it starts to get very black. And I'm thinking to myself, and in moments like this, it's like people that have car accidents, they time slows down. A lot of thoughts went through my head at that point. I thought to myself, well, 
is this it? I, I can't jump out of a plane blind. I can't jump out mm-hmm. passing out. It's not possible. But what's wrong? Is this physical? Is it emotional? Is it anxiety? What's going on right here? But when it came down to it, I said to myself, I, I can't leave my brothers. We are a group. We're a detachment. We're jumping. We weren't. We were his training environment. We're, mm-hmm. But in my mind, we were jumping into the real, this was the mission. We were jumping in and they needed another body on the ground. So I have to jump. Mm-hmm. Even if I jumped, passed out, my automatic parachute opener would have opened eventually and I would have got to the ground and I would have been able to support. So we talk about the mindset of the individual and uh, what it takes. That That's kind of what it takes is the willingness to put yourself over your body, yourself, over for the mission. So why was the, uh, were you losing consciousness? Yeah, I think I think really what it came down to was anxiety yeah. uh, because I wasn't the best of the best when it came to flying like this mm-hmm. and, you know, add all those factors, long day, hot sun, whatever it happened to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I had done and what I continue to do and practice and, you know, what lead athletes will tell you the same thing is the, the cycle so maybe the average person would have allowed that cycle to happen. They would have allowed themselves to pass out or they would have turned off and caught a breath. Mm-hmm. But for us, the cycle has to be so quick. I got back in my head and said to myself, no matter what this is, you have a mission. You have to get back involved. Mm-hmm. Don't let your body take over. And as soon as I said that to myself and became cognizant, all of a sudden my vision opened back up again, took a deep breath, got some oxygen into my body, and I felt totally fine. Jumped mm-hmm. out and had a successful jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it kind of, you know, for hairy moments, for me, that was a hairy moment at that time. Mm-hmm. So what comes next for you? Um, how, sorry, how, how old are you? I'm in my late 40s. So, uh, you know, I understand, you know, special operations yeah. is kind of hard on the body uh, physically, <laughs> I guess, so I'm yeah. told, right? Yeah. I mean, so where do you go from here? Do you you stay in the command? You mentioned that you wanted to, yeah. uh, you know, remain. So. Yeah, absolutely you stay in the command. Uh, there's... There's more than enough opportunities for, you know, if you stay physically, so as, as an operator salter, you know, I have to pass an annual physical test. So as long as I'm still doing that, I still can f- function in every role possible. Mm-hmm. But let's say I can't. So let's say there comes a point where I say I've injured myself, uh, whatever it happens to be. There are still many opportunities within the command in leadership roles where you can affect change and make a difference. Uh, supporting the individuals that do go out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's lots of opportunities. Uh, a lot of those, you know, with, with one of the other elements of the organization is a school that's located in Petawawa yep. to help our junior leaders and our senior leaders move on. Uh, so there's development there as well. Uh, there's developing new programs uh, for the organization. It's, it's, it's almost unlimited, especially after two decades of experience. Uh, nobody wants to give that up. Mm-hmm. And the organization wants to keep you so they can use that experience uh, to help educate others. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit. So I've been up to CSOR's uh, okay. shooting house. Uh, yeah. and, and so I've watched from the, you know, uh, from the top area and looking down as, as they kick in the door and yeah. throw in the flash uh, flashbangs and that type of thing. Talk a little bit. It seems like a lot of this is, uh, and you alluded to it earlier, it's just you've done it so many times um, uh, that it just becomes second nature. Yep, absolutely. Repetition, Repetition, repetition. Yeah. I mean, are you even thinking about, you know, putting the bullet in the piece of paper or is it, it's just. It's, it is quite amazing uh, that in the beginning, like I said, we talk about our initial candidates that come through, mm-hmm. which foot to start with, left or right foot is confusing. Mm-hmm. It, it actually is confusing. You know, how do I be the most efficient way to enter that door so that somebody on the inside can't shoot me as I come through that door? Mm-hmm. How to be efficient, how to be quick, but you absolutely do. You do it enough times. You get to the point now where I think it was about my second year in, uh, in the organization at Dwyer Hill, where 
while I'm entering a room, doing what it takes to, to do inside that room, you know, identifying targets, looking around the room, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with hostage rescue situation, thinking that through, I'm already, I can imagine what's happening in the room beside me and who's coming in behind me. Mm-hmm. All that, I, my, my thought process, of all it, that it's slowed down enough that I understand I can't shoot towards that wall because there's another detachment on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried about overpenetration. The, bu- like, the bullet going through the wall. Yeah, my, my thoughts are actually have gone to that, get to that level. But so how do you sort all this in your head, right? I mean, it's almost like a computer. Yeah. Like. Maybe it's a prioritization, I would, I would assume. You have to deal with the threat that's the most obvious to you right then and there at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of repetition, because of, of realistic exercises and realistic training, because of all the selection process that we've gone through, uh, life experiences all add up, all culminate to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, maybe all the sporting activities, maybe all the times I spent learning courses that I never really felt followed through on, but open to experiences, all add up to that moment. Is there any, uh, and this puts you on the spot, I guess, is there any ranking of, uh, of, of you know, how would Canada fit into uh, the ranking of, uh, of foreign, you yeah. know, special operations forces? Well, maybe I'm a little bit biased <laughs> on this one, <laughs> right. but I think we've got a, a, a great reputation. Yeah. Uh, I think I've actually read this. This has actually been published numerous times. Uh, back, we think back to Afghanistan in the early days. Uh, the, one of the task force commander was uh, Rob Howard, and he stated a saying: the "When Navy uh, SEAL Navy commander, SEAL commander Howard, yep. when it came time for a direct action, it was Joint Task Force Two, it was the Canadians that I always wanted to employ. Mm-hmm. And this is an individual that had absolutely anybody under his command that he was able to put out the door. Mm-hmm. So that speaks speaks a lot. From that was two almost two decades ago, right. and I think the reputation has continued continue to grow from there. Now, you know, let's be realistic: we are a country of." 30-some thousand, you know, whatever our GDP is, that's equal to the state of California. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas some other tier one organizations can have multiple C-17 sitting on the runway ready to go. Mm -hmm. So they have more projective force ability. Uh, But as man for man, skill-wise, we're comparable with any other tier one organization out there. Mm -hmm. And we we, we talk with them, we train with them. so, Mm -hmm. So we've got a good relationship. Thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me here today. And again, I want to thank the audience for listening in and participating in this, this engagement. We've been talking to Jeff, a member of the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, who was a member as well of Joint Task Force 2, which is the counterterrorism unit. Our next guest is a man who has commanded Joint Task Force 2 and later the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. Welcome to retired Lieutenant General Mike Day. Thanks, David. So... What is it about Canadian Special Forces? What, why does Canada need a Special Forces unit or units? So I think history here is important um, in terms of the genesis when we stood up our, our first Special Forces unit in, in modern history, understanding, of course, that Canada has a pretty significant historical legacy. Uh, dating back, you know, to uh, the Second World War, the first Special Service Force, uh, everything else. But in modern times, when we stood up the unit in 1992, um, it really was a domestic counter-terrorist focus. The decision was that the RCMP uh, would switch out of the role, a variety of reasons at the time, and national defense would take that on. Uh, That's the genesis. And then, of course, what we started to see um, at the time in the Balkans were a series of kidnappings 
that were taking place uh, of a number of Canadian military individuals. And so we started to consider as an institution what other capabilities could we leverage off of these these core mm-hmm. skills, the core skills at the time being shoot, move, communicate. And, and you're talking about, I think it was an incident where 55 Canadians were, were taken hostage. Yeah, 55 uh, Canadians in yeah. Iliash, which yeah. is just, you know, outside of, of Sarajevo. We had uh, Pat Reckner, if you mm-hmm, remember the right. classic photo chain of him, to the chain post. to the post. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it started people thinking that, you know, the world's a big, bad, bold place. Maybe we kind of need some additional capabilities and we already have a core set of skills. How do we leverage that? Of course, you know, we went through that. Canada was pretty active in the 90s um, in terms of peacekeeping missions. Mm-hmm. And there was also, you know, a series of domestic threats in other countries. And, and I think Canada rightfully uh, was concerned of whether or not um, we needed to have the ability to respond as well. Mm-hmm. All of that, of course, changed in, you know, 9-11. Right. You know, following 9-11. And the decision was that Canada... Uh, as, as everybody knows, would support the American-led coalition uh, going into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And there was a quick look, uh, detailed but relatively quick in military terms, weeks, not months or years, of, of what could we offer that had real relevance. The, the difference between doing a special operations direct action um, raid mm-hmm. and a hostage rescue is... You know, the difference is nominal at best. Mm-hmm. And so the decision was we would quickly retool uh, that capability and, and move it into Afghanistan. That provides the lens through which why does Canada need, back to your original question, why does Canada need one? Because it needs a, this kind of tool in its toolbox mm-hmm. uh, to deal with a, an international environment that's fundamentally different than it was not just during the Cold War, but the immediate you know, decade following the Cold War. We're living in a different operating environment. That's mm-hmm. why we need it. We need that tool. And when you say direct action, which is one of the main roles of the Canadian Special Forces, you're talking about finding a, a bad guy or a group of bad guys, and you're talking about a, a direct attack on that. Uh, I, I don't think I'd use the word attack because mm-hmm. that, that implies that there is a predetermination to use force. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, I think, the, the proudest... Um, you know, statistics that I often throw out from our time in Afghanistan is is out of the, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of direct action raids that our teams went through. They, you know, they actually used, you know, force less than 25% of the time. So mm-hmm. attack doesn't really capture it. It really is, is about disrupting, you know, the activities of the command and control of your adversaries, mm-hmm removing force protection threats. You know, a lot of the work that the teams did in Afghanistan was actually trying to hit IED cells, the, mm-hmm. the cells that were implanting explosive devices in roads that were, were killing Canadian soldiers. So capturing was was kind of, you mentioned violence was, was on the lower end of the spectrum. So I'm assuming that capturing the bad guys or the IED cell coordinator or the, uh, the Taliban coordinator was, was kind of the main objective on a lot of that. Right. I, I, and it's really, there's two underlining premise on, on that. You know, one, you have to train to a single standard. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't wake up in the morning as an operator and go, what country am I in? What standard should I apply? And so this, the, the training standard, the qualification standard, the operating standard is shoot or no shoot. And it's based on threat or no threat. Mm-hmm. If there is no threat, 
you don't shoot. Mm-hmm. So if you apply that standard for a domestic hostage taken in Canada mm. or direct action raid in Afghanistan, you're good to go on either of those. But how does... There's a second standard, yeah. though, which is you can't kill your way to victory. Mm-hmm. And every special operator understands, you know, that that's not the way that peace, ultimately peace is created. And, mm-hmm. and so what you're trying to do is disrupt operations, remove mm-hmm. threats. Mm-hmm. So... From a perspective, okay, so you're in JTF2, you, you've, you know, kicked in the door during your training missions or whatever, and you've got a split second to make that decision. <clears throat> is this individual is standing before me in a dark area uh, a threat or not a threat? I mean, what's going through your mind? How do you compute that so quickly? So, yeah. so that's just training. That's yeah. habitual training. And, and I uh, liken that to no different than an F-18 pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, who's having to make split decisions, you know, or a guy driving a submarine, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, a SARTEC making life and death decisions. You know, this this is training. This is selecting the right people mm-hmm. who have a predisposition to be able to absorb and apply um, continuous training to make those decisions immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's talk now about um, uh, bringing in uh, people uh, into Canadian Special Forces from the street as opposed to recruiting from within the Canadian Forces. In your view, do you think that's, you know, taking someone from the street and, and, and using them in various roles, is that, is that workable? So we've, we've um, the Five Eyes community, which consists of the five countries that really do share a great deal of uh, previous practices to make sure we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So you can look at the Americans. They've gone through this. The Australians have done it to some degree, et cetera. You know, it's absolutely worth examining. Mm-hmm. Um, we should separate the idea from, from practice, however. If the decision in the end is to take somebody from the street, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that the moment they get through qualification selection, which, by the way, doesn't guarantee they're going to get through selection, which is Mm -hmm. a meat grinder, that they get through the training phase, that on day one, the team, you know, that they're going to be used in the same way as a person with 10 years of military experience. Right. You know, this is, there's a continuum of experience and skill sets. And so I, um, I'm absolutely in favor of, of uh, Kansoff exploring that idea because mm-hmm. I have tremendous confidence in the leadership right from the most senior leaders mm-hmm. to the detachment commanders at the master corporal sergeant level that they'll never put people in a position that they're not prepared to mm-hmm. be employed in. Mm-hmm. Now, how long does it, again, I've used this phrase a number of times, how long does it take to create a special operator with 10 years of experience mm-hmm. who is can lead a team independently somewhere in the world? It takes 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you know special forces? There's such there's been such an explosion of publicity around special forces. You know they're kind of like almost the the, the movie stars of the military, right? In, in in various countries, right? We see it in the United States, movies, books. Um, you know the Brits have been dealing with it as well. What's your view on that? Look, um, I believe fundamentally that there is value to a degree of transparency if for no other reason, to dispel some of that Hollywood-esque myth. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these are not the, you know, the best-looking uh, men and women of the world. You know, they can't take on whole nations by themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not able to fly helicopters, uh, fighter jets, um, drive boats, you know, jump from, you know, 30,000 feet, 
you know, um, without a parachute. Mm. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Right. So if the transparency says these are just men and women that are suited towards the demands of the job, mm-hmm. that make remarkable sacrifices, and that by itself is noteworthy enough, transparency has real value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I am, I'm, as, as you know from my time, you know, commanding, not just as a, as a young operator before I was ever mm-hmm. commanding, um, but both, you know, in various command positions and and later on in life, I've always believed that there is tremendous value of demystifying, you know, a great deal of this. Mm-hmm. But are you, is there, are you running a chance that you're, uh, you're, you're revealing too much or maybe that's, that's part of the, uh, you know, part of the strategy, whereas the enemy doesn't really know what uh, a unit is capable of. So we have as a community faced pressures from various governments to reveal more than as operators and as commanders we would be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. We have successfully pushed back against that, um, whilst agreeing that some level of visibility and transparency is really important. Uh, I am I'm, I'm very comfortable with what we've exposed over the decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's important to realize just the remarkable uh, contribution skill set that our men and women have provided, and I think that some publicity is due them, so they do get recognized for that. And, and I always love to see that when it happens, you know, because they don't get a lot of, of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm also very comfortable with the idea that the chain of command has a very clear sense of what's good to expose, what isn't. Mm-hmm. Like there is value, mm-hmm. uh, David, in, in saying Canada has a world-class capability here that it can use. Mm-hmm. Um, there's real political value and there's real operational value in demonstrating that mm-hmm. without giving away specifics. Yeah. The current size is around 1,900 individuals. Now, that includes a variety of units and, and support staff and such. I mean, is that, and they want to expand a little bit. I mean, is there a limit on uh, on what you can expand to, I guess, both from bringing in uh, properly trained people and, you know, you don't want to get too big, right? So, there's there's two limiting factors. And I think you're right to, to ask the question. Um, the first limiting factor, people don't often think about this, mm-hmm. but the first limiting factor is the absorption capacity of the command itself. It's an exceptionally busy organization. Its operational tempo is far and away the greatest in the Canadian Armed Forces, that, which is, by the way, one of the appeals to many of our people coming on board. They mm-hmm. want to be doing these things. Mm-hmm. But we can only... They can only, i got to remember that I'm an old guy, I'm retired, and they wouldn't let me anywhere near any of those organizations. I'd hurt myself if I was. But they can only absorb so many people uh, because they've got so many people involved in operations. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that as a limiting factor. You can only grow by a percentage regardless of aspiration or ambition. You can only grow by so much. Secondly, there is absolutely a finite number of individuals who are suitable to that. But I would argue that's no different, again, than flying F-18s or driving submarines mm-hmm. or any particular job, being a journalist. Mm-hmm. There's only so many people who who have core skill sets to do certain jobs. Mm-hmm. I ran selection as a young officer. Mm-hmm. And I used to say to, you know, to the group, look, you know, we all know in the end, you know, a very small percentage of you are, are going to get through this process a smaller percentage are going to get badged, qualified that is, mm-hmm. and 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 deployed ultimately with our teams. It doesn't mean 
you're not great soldiers, sailors, airmen, because we're a tri-service mm-hmm. organization. We recruit from all came forces. You know, we said no when I ran selection to people who ended up being very senior officers and very senior uh, NCOs, you know, command chief warrant officers, RSMs, uh, regimental sergeant majors. And we said yes to people who, quite frankly, we promoted once and then held them at rank. Mm-hmm. It's a fit, round peg, round hole. So what, I mean, what would Canadian Special Forces be looking for in an individual? So, I, I know it sounds a little cheesy, um, but we use the word cognitive warrior because ultimately it is about decision-making. Mm-hmm. It is about taking in a variety of inputs and stimulus, understanding your operating environment, understanding what you're required to achieve in, in a national strategic sense, putting that all together, understanding you're working in chaos and making good decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... All of our selection processes, and they're all geared to the different mandates of the different units, all the selection processes are ultimately about that. Now, look, there's a there's a base level of physical aptitude you have to have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you can make anybody fitter. You can't change somebody's lifestyle. You know, if they don't have a lifestyle of fitness, and, and the men and women are, they're exceptionally fit. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not minimizing that. Those are table stakes, however. Mm-hmm. That by itself doesn't get you through. You have to be able to work under high stress for prolonged periods of time in small teams and be willing to rely on others. Mm-hmm. Operators are, are not unitary actors. They rely on the team working as a team. Mm-hmm. So we, all the selection processes are really measuring that, but it really comes down to if you're not able to make good decisions and, and absorb all those various stimulus in high stress in, uh, environments where there is no defined circumstance. Even if you make it through selection, you're, you're not going to last because mm. you're not useful. Well, I mean, what's the kind of quote the shelf life of? Uh, and when we talk about an operator, we're talking about a, a soldier, right? Uh, I mean, I, I know you use the term operator, but yeah, but the, you, you know, know, I guess the the guys who come from the Navy and the Air Force would bristle mm. at the word soldier, right? 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 Okay, because they've spent their life in the Navy and they joined us, right? And 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 we are a joint operation. So mm. use what you term, but but I guarantee you the you know the the air the air personnel and the people from the navy mm-hmm. they, they won't like that but no, military personnel then yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean what's the, the operators the operators and the, <laughs> okay, we'll and, stick with operators good, good. and and the supporters <laughs> right. which are um, they are the key part of, right. of that team and you're talking support staff uh, ammunition technicians well, uh, people that, who are working you know, we on actually the weapons have two people uh, two types of, of supporters we have supporters mm. who who are again are world class in being able to deploy and sustain small teams around the world mm-hmm. that's that's a remarkable skill set you mean from a logistics from perspective? a logistics yeah. personnel mm-hmm. hr perspective from a logistics perspective and then you have support personnel who actually go off on missions Think about your medics, your signalers, mm-hmm. all those sorts of people. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a specialized skill set. So it takes a, a whole organization of different kinds. Mm-hmm. You talked about shelf life. You know, I'm 56. Mm-hmm. You know, I love to think that I could do the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I'm lying to myself. I think you remember. I remember one time you mentioned that the knees go first. Yeah, so, so. You know, it depends on <laughs> where the fragility is. You know, yeah. uh, here's the thing about. The special operations, however, having said everybody can be fitter, mm-hmm. you can make everybody fitter. Remembering what I said about the cognitive warrior, our shelf life is actually much longer 
um, than, uh, than people would imagine. Because, yes, the physical demands, but with the type of training, what you lose physically, you gain in experience and maturity and, and all those other things. And so the, the self-life, this is not actually a young man or women's game. Right. 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 The best operator, in my view, is probably someone plus or minus 40 years old mm-hmm. who's got over a decade of experience. All of that professional maturity has not accumulated so many bangs, scrapes, and, and hurts that mm-hmm. they can't do the job. Mm-hmm. Like, they, you know, like the next morning, that's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. Getting up, they're not going to be that 25-year-old who, mm-hmm. who can get up and go, okay, what are we doing today? Mm-hmm. Um, but the self life is much longer than people are because of what we value. So, from your personal job, I mean, you've been in the, that job for a while. I mean, what's the what's kind of the most challenging um, situation that you've been in? And I'm not talking command point of view. Maybe it's a, a training point, uh, a training exercise, or I mean, in, in general description terms. So, right? I actually think it's the same for every military. Mm-hmm. Remember, the biggest challenge situation is the environment you leave your family in. Mm. Like, no answer for buts. Mm-hmm. It will always be, for the vast majority of King Forces members, the greatest challenge you ever face, which is leaving loved ones behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about, you know, operational things, I, I, I think it, it's a well-regarded tradition not actually to talk about specifics of any deployments. Mm-hmm. Having said that, Making a decision to send other people in harm's way, mm-hmm. I think for any military member, is far and away the hardest thing. Shared danger, shared risk is much easier to accept if you're involved as a commander, n- knowing that you're asking people to do something you're willing to do, but that isn't your job at that moment. I, I think far outstrips a- anything. And you talk to anybody at any rank level, mm-hmm. um, I would argue that, that is, that's the hardest thing to bear. We've been speaking to retired Lieutenant General Mike Day, a veteran Canadian Special Forces commander and a former member of Joint Task Force 2. You've been listening to Defence Watch. I'm Dave Puglesi. If you'd like to share your comments or suggestions for future podcasts, email me at dpugliese at postmedia.com. If you'd like to see the digital version of Defence Watch, go to the Ottawa Citizens website. Defence Watch has been produced by Post Media. Sound editing by Mina Gamry. Our senior editor is Drake Fenton. Our editor-in-chief is Michelle Richardson. Special thanks to Keith Bennell. Thanks for listening.